in to worship this morning, and whether you realize it or not, and whether I realize it or not, so much of our week has been spent being shaped and formed by a view of ourselves and a view of the world of the culture. And we have soaked in it, and we have been shaped by it, and our dispositions and our, our, our view of others has been formed by, by this, this culture that we live in. And, and part of what we're doing this morning, whether you realize it or not, is you're coming here, and, and you and I are being reshaped and reformed, and our minds are being renewed, and our habits hopefully are being changed by the culture of heaven and by the truth of the word of God. Our view of others, our view of ourselves, our view of the world around us is all being shaped and formed by the fact that Christ has had victory over death and has risen from the grave and we have a living hope. And that, that should send us out of here to live in a different way with a different perspective and to, to begin to, to view ourselves and others and the world differently. And so part of what you're doing this morning is being reformed and reshaped by your time in the worship service. And so it's a good and a necessary thing to be here and to do what we're doing this morning. So, man, that was good. I'm, I'm so thankful for our musicians and, uh, and the singing that we're able to do. Um, very, very important part of, of our formation uh, toward the Lord. Well, you can open your Bibles up to Exodus chapter 8, the passage that Zach read this morning. I'm sure every follower of Christ, those of you that have been saved for a very long time, or even if you've only been saved for a few years, you can look back on your spiritual life and you can pinpoint certain moments in your spiritual life that were impactful, that just for some reason stick out. And you think about those moments at various times and they were, they were high points or they were significant points. For some reason for me, I have several of those, but for some reason for me, there is this completely mundane moment that I always think about uh, when I was in college. I was leaving my dorm to go to a classroom one morning, and I don't even remember why or what I had read, but I was, I was meditating and just thinking about the reality of God's absolute sovereignty. And I just, in my 20 or 21 year old mind, I was just kind of mulling that over and thinking about this truth that the God that I know and worship is in complete control of everything. Nothing moves apart from his hand. He is all powerful and all sovereign. And that reality was just sitting on my, on my brain that morning as I was walking to class. It, you know, passages like this. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. I mean, this is taught everywhere in scripture, and this is one that just sort of sticks out as summarizing this, this teaching, this reality that God is sovereign. And I, I remember what stuck out to me and what I always remember about that was I, was I was walking and thinking about this, and as I meditated on that truth, I remember this just very joyful and very relaxed feeling sort of coming over me. I know it sounds a little bit odd, but I just remember just kind of like taking a deep breath and letting it out and just being like, man, the Lord is in control. Like, whatever uncertainties there are in my life right now, 
I just sort of like almost like fell back into his sovereignty and just thought, he's got it. Like, how sweet is this? I don't have to worry about it. Like, he's in control, and he's, he's sovereign, and he's good, and I don't, there's nothing I can do about it anyway. I don't have ultimate control over my life. And so in all the circumstances of my life, he's working, he's moving, he's changing, he's orchestrating, he's doing this in other people's lives as well. He's ruling over even the smallest details of what's happening. And he's doing all of that for his glory and for my good. That's a great thing. And so I, I just, that always has sort of stuck out to me as a, a significant moment in my spiritual life. And I, I think about that feeling of joy and relaxation, and I very much want that to be my daily experience. And I think you probably do too. And I think at least some of the, the stress and the worry and the anxiety of our lives is that we We believe we have more control than we really do, and we act as if we have more control than we really do. And we sort of put God's sovereignty in the background, and we don't let it shape our emotions. I don't let it shape my emotions today like I did back then for whatever reason. And when we live that way as if we're in some sort of control and God's not, that's a lot of pressure. I mean, that's a that's an intense amount of responsibility that we have, as if that's true. And the consistent testimony of the Bible is that you and I have way less influence and control than we think we do. And God is much more in control and much, a, a much bigger part of our lives than we often believe and, and act as if he is. And that reality of his sovereignty, I think, is one of the central lessons of this passage that we're looking at this morning and, and uh, throughout the 10 plagues. This story of the 10 plagues puts on display God's sovereignty and his control over even the tiniest details of life. We started studying this a month ago, and I want to return to it today and finish it up next week. And our goal in studying this is to see this whole passage from chapter 7 and verse 8 all the way through chapter 11 and verse 10 to see all of this within the flow of the book of Exodus, right? I mean, we don't want to just pull this out and study it on its own. We want to see how this fits within the narrative and the story of Exodus. And so I've tried to summarize. You probably don't remember this because, to be honest, I had to look it up, (laughs) the way I summarized this whole passage. But here's how I tried to summarize it about a month ago before Easter and, and Zach's ordination as an elder and all of that. So here's how I tried to summarize this. God's sovereignty over nature, displayed in these signs, these plagues, demonstrates or shows his superiority over any other gods, any rivals. No one can stand before him. And so you see the two key words in this summary are sovereignty and superiority. This is the message of the 10 plagues. And this is the message of the 10 plagues because of what Pharaoh asked in chapter five and verse two, who is the Lord that I should obey him? And the answer is he is the sovereign king of the universe. And because he's the sovereign king of the universe, the creator God, the one who controls everything, he is superior to any other rival, even you, Pharaoh, and any of the gods that you represent and that you worship, he is superior to to the gods of Egypt here in particular. So his sovereignty demonstrates his superiority over any other rival. And this is so significant in 
this interaction with Pharaoh in particular, because you will remember, I'm sure, that Pharaoh viewed himself as divine, and the Egyptians viewed him as a son of a god. He was the representative of the gods, and as that divine son of a god representative, his role, his responsibility, was to maintain the natural order. And so keeping the the seasons and the Nile River and the, the pests even in the land of Egypt and the livestock and keeping everything functioning as it should as he interacts with the gods and, and helps them to do that. That was his goal. That was his responsibility. And so for, for that natural order to come undone and to descend into chaos that would have hit right at the heart of what he was supposed to be and do. And it would have been humiliating for him to recognize and to begin to understand that he doesn't have any control. He doesn't have any sovereignty or ability to control any of this. But the Lord does, and so his sovereignty shows his superiority. Now, as you look at these plagues, just to remind you of this, these first nine signs or plagues The 10th one is sort of set apart as the climax and the culmination. Everything builds toward that. But as you look at these first nine plagues, they come in three cycles of three. That's a lot of numbers, I know. But there are three cycles, and each cycle contains three plagues. And they're actually written and structured uh, very, very well, easy for us to see in, in this story in the book of Exodus. And as these cycles unfold, we looked at the first one about a month ago, and we'll look at the second cycle today, and then the third one next week. But as these cycles unfold, the plagues sort of increase in intensity and destruction. They begin sort of annoying, uncomfortable, make my life a little more difficult. And then you'll see today, they begin to cause destruction, and the next time it's serious. It is an all-out attack on the Egyptians and on their gods, and then, of course, the 10th plague brings all of that to a head as God goes directly after Pharaoh and his son and, uh, and, and the, the firstborn of all of the Egyptians. So with all of that in mind, let's go to Exodus chapter 8 and verse 20, which is where we're going to begin this morning. And with this, this summary in your head and may hopefully written down, we're going to walk through the second cycle of plagues and see all of these themes come out once again as we read through and study this story. So Look at Exodus chapter 8 and verse 20. Then the Lord said to Moses, rise up early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh as he goes out to the water and say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. Now keep in mind that each of the cycles begins with a plague, the first, the fourth, and the seventh plague. They begin this way where Moses goes out in the morning early to meet Pharaoh while he is going down into the Nile River, into the water. And what's happening here is most likely this was a religious ritual that Pharaoh would do every single morning. He wasn't just taking a bath every morning. He was taking a ritual bath, and this was something that he was doing in order to connect with the gods and to seek their favor and to commune with them. And so as he's doing this communing with his gods, Moses shows up on the scene and gives him a command from Yahweh God, from the God of the Hebrews. And the demand, once again, is that Pharaoh will let God's people go. 
and specifically that he will let them go so that they can serve him. I mean, look right there what it says at the end of verse 20. Let my people go that they may serve me. It's important to remember that the movement of this entire book, it's a long book, 40 chapters, but the the basic movement of this book is from enslavement to one master to redemption from and rescue from that master into service for another master. Slavery to redemption to service of a new master. That's the movement of the nation of Israel, and that's the the movement of this whole book. And not coincidentally, that is the movement of your life as well, and my life in Christ. From slavery to sin, to redemption in Christ, and rescue from sin, to now service and worship of a new master. And the crux of this book, the center thematically and in the story of this book is the the rescue, the Passover rescue of the nation of Israel from slavery to to Israel's current master. And so this time God issues a threat when he demands that his people be let go. Look at verse 21. Or else, if you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants and your people and into your houses, and the houses of the Egyptians shall be filled with swarms of flies, and also the ground on which they stand. Now, there's a play on words here that you can't really see in English that I want to show you that is fascinating. So in verse 20, God says, let my people go, and that is the same word in Hebrew as the word send in verse 21. So let me translate them both differently so that you can see what God is saying here and how he's making this play on words. So he says, release my people that they may serve me, or else if you will not release my people, behold, I will release swarms of flies on you, right? And so it's a play on words here to emphasize, look, you don't let my people go, you don't release them, I'm gonna release something on you. Now what exactly is going to happen here? What exactly is God going to do to the Egyptians? Well, we can't pinpoint with 100% accuracy what these insects would have been. But if you're like me, you read this and you think fly, and you think annoying housefly. They sort of buzz around and make noise, and you can't really get rid of them unless you have a great fly swatter. And, you know, that's what sort of comes in my, my head here when I read this. And so you're thinking flies. Well, that's annoying, but that's not at all what this would have been for this plague. That's not what's meant here because of a passage later in the book of Psalms that describes what these flies or these insects did. Look at Psalm 78, 45. Describing the plagues. He says this, he sent among them swarms of flies which devoured them and frogs which destroyed them, right? So the description here is that these these insects weren't just flying around, they were biting the Egyptians. They were devouring them. There's a high likelihood that these were mosquitoes. There's also a chance that these could have been biting flies, which... I'm not from Michigan. My understanding is that occasionally we have biting flies in northern Michigan. Thankfully, I have not experienced that part of the culture here and hope to never experience it. 
We don't know exactly what this would have been, but if you want a fun afternoon, just go Google biting insects and just have a good time seeing what the possibilities could have been here for these flies, these biting insects. The emphasis here in verse 21, though, look with me, is there are swarms of these things. I mean, it's not just like the one little house fly that you're chasing around with your fly swatter. Verse 21, or else, if you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of these biting insects on you and your servants and your people and into your houses. And the houses of the Egyptians shall be filled with swarms of these biting insects and also the ground on which they stand. There are massive numbers of these. It is not a coincidence. It's not some natural occurrence that happens here. The volume of these insects is so significant that they are overwhelming. They're everywhere. They are on every single Egyptian. They are on in every single house. They did not have glass windows to keep the insects out of their house. And even if they wanted to cover them up, it was so hot that they couldn't have done that. They had to keep a breeze moving just to survive in their houses. You go outside, the insects are there. You go inside, they're there. They are everywhere. They are biting, biting, biting constantly. You are starting to fill up with welts. It's itchy. Your kids are having skin reactions to these biting insects. You've got bumps everywhere. You look awful. And there's nothing you can do to stop these insects. You can't keep them out of your bedroom at night. Constantly, they're biting you. There is no relief from this. But notice here, as this happens, look what God promises he's going to do. This awful judgment comes on the Egyptians, but it doesn't extend to the Israelites. Look at verses 22 and 23. But on that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen, where my people dwell, so that no swarms of flies shall be there. Why? That you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Thus, I'll put a division between my people and your people Tomorrow this sign shall happen. This is the first time in the ten plagues that we have clarity on where these plagues took place. There's every reason to believe that all of the previous plagues were limited to the nation or to the people of Egypt and that they didn't impact Israel, and now it is made explicit. God, amazingly enough, doesn't just make these mosquitoes or biting flies or maybe some combination of them. He doesn't just make them appear in huge numbers. He actually tells them and limits them to where they can go and to who they can bite. They can't go here. They can go here. They literally can only fly to here, and they stop, and they don't mess with the Israelites. And he does this for a specific reason in verse 22, which I drew your attention to. The reason is that they may know that he is the Lord in the midst of the earth. I mean, I suppose that early on, Pharaoh and the other Egyptians could try to convince themselves that it was merely coincidence that the frogs came up or that lice or gnats came onto them. But here, God in advance points out that he is going to draw a distinction between the Egyptians and the Israelites. He is clearly saying, you've got your people, I've got my people, I'm going to draw a distinction, and I am going to protect my people. 
And what this would have done is called Pharaoh's power into question in significant ways. It would have called his role as a son of a god into question. I mean, Pharaoh was the protector of Egypt, right? If anything, this was supposed to be reversed. And up to this point, it really had been. The Israelites, God's people, were enslaved to Pharaoh. He did what he wanted with them, and now all of that is getting turned upside down. Now Pharaoh's people are the ones suffering, and God's people are the ones who are free from the suffering. Now why here, we have to ask the question, why did God draw this distinction? Why did he protect Israel? Well, it's quite clear they were his people. Well, okay, how did they become his people? Well, he made a covenant with their forefathers, with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And he promised to be faithful to that covenant. Well, why them? Why did he make a covenant with Why Abraham? Why Isaac? Why Jacob? Why the 12 tribes? Why did he make a covenant with them? And why is he continuing that covenant with the nation of Israel? What's so special about them? Well, nothing. Whoops, I left, a, I left a passage out. Nothing was special about them, but you need to remember and to read, and let me, let me read it to you, Deuteronomy 7, verses 7 and 8. This is what God says to the Israelites. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples, But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. There was nothing special about them at all. And this is the reality of who God is. And this is part of what we learn about God and what the Egyptians learn about God here from the way he draws distinctions. He does draw distinctions. He is a God who does this. He judges and he redeems. He acts differently. And why does he redeem some? Why does he rescue the Israelites? It is not, as Deuteronomy says, it's not because of their worth. It's not because of their goodness. It's not because of their numbers. It's not because of their righteousness. And this is true of you and I as well. He redeems based on his sovereign grace, unmerited, freely given. If you're here this morning and and you have come to know the Lord and you have turned from your sin and you've trusted Christ, if you are are a partaker of the new covenant and you're in a relationship with God, it is not because you are so special. It's not because I'm so special or so good. The grace that we have been shown The redemption that we have is so unmerited and so undeserved, just as it was with Israel, that the only proper response to this is joy and worshipful obedience to the Lord, thankfulness and gratitude that continually comes out of us. To remember that this is our reality, that we have been shown grace and it is not because of anything we've done or anything that we have deserved. If you're here this morning and you've never received this grace and you're not part of the covenant family of the Lord, it is available and it is offered. 
One of the glorious things that you'll see later in the story of the plagues is that there are Egyptians who begin to see God's power and they begin to understand who he is and they act on what he says and trust him. And then there's actually a mixed multitude that heads out of Egypt. There's every reason to believe that some of the Egyptians left with Israel and went out and crossed the Red Sea and watched Pharaoh and his men get destroyed. There's every reason to believe that from the text. Because God offered grace and they, they obeyed. They listened. And so if you're here this morning and you've never received that, God calls you to repent of your sin and turn to Christ in faith. And that offer is available by his sovereign and good grace. And God here in Exodus demonstrates his power to judge and his power to redeem He's putting both of those on display by naming this plague the exact time that it will happen and then following through on it. And so we know by this that he is Lord and that he can do whatever he wants and he can judge and he can redeem. The end of verse 23, tomorrow this sign shall happen, verse 24, and the Lord did so. There came great swarms of flies into the house of Pharaoh and into his servants' houses throughout all the land of Egypt. The land was ruined or corrupted. I mean, you can imagine if there are insects all over the ground and you're stepping on them and you're, you're eating them in your food and they're everywhere, then you would say that your land and your lifestyle has been corrupted by that. That's exactly what has happened. It was ruined by the swarms of flies. Now, of course, one of the things that you come to see in these signs or in these plagues is that every single one ends, it starts the same way with God's word, and it ends the same way with Pharaoh's hardened heart. And that's going to be true here, but there's a, there's a progression and there's a change in the interaction that Pharaoh has. There's increased pressure throughout these plagues on the people and then on Pharaoh himself. And he starts to sort of show some cracks in the armor as all of this unfolds. Look at verses 25 to 27. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Go, sacrifice to your God within the land. So he sort of offers this olive branch, he thinks, here. But Moses said it would not be right to do so, for the offerings we shall sacrifice to the Lord our God are an abomination to the Egyptians." If we sacrifice offerings abominable to the Egyptians before their eyes, will they not stone us? Verse 27, we must go three days' journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God as he tells us. And so Pharaoh thinks that maybe he can sort of negotiate a compromise. He's trying to maintain control and maybe get rid of the, some of these plagues and also still keep the Israelites He's still arrogant and still thinks he is somewhat in charge here. And he's using this as a negotiation tactic to try to get what he wants. Look at verse 28. So Pharaoh said, I will let you go to sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness, only you must not go very far away. And then here's what he really wants. Plead for me, which the irony of that is amazing that he's acknowledges and knows that God has to be the one to end this plague, and yet Pharaoh's still trying to maintain control. And even Moses picks up on the deceit, and he sees the deceit in his heart. Look at verse 29. Then Moses said, Behold, 
I'm going out from you, and I will plead with the Lord that the swarms of flies may depart from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from his people tomorrow. Only let not Pharaoh cheat or deceive again by not letting the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. Now, despite Moses' warning here, as you've come to expect and I've come to expect, the same pattern happens. Look at verses 30 to 32. So Moses went out from Pharaoh prayed to the Lord, and the Lord did as Moses asked and removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh, from his servants, from his people. Not one remained, but Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also and did not let the people go. Same thing happens. Now, I told you there's an increase in severity in these plagues, and you're really going to see that get going in the fifth plague here. So look at chapter 9, verses one through three. Then the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let them go and still hold them, or he's saying, hold them back, keep them from doing what God has for them. Verse three, behold, the hand of the Lord will fall with a very severe plague upon your livestock that are in the field, the horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herds, and the flocks. Now we have a threat again from the Lord. We have the demand to let them go. And now we have a specific targeted threat against the animals of Egypt. So the first three were an annoyance. The fourth one was pretty rough. You really don't want to experience that. And it, it, to some level, brought corruption or ruin on the land. But this one This is intense. There's going to be a specific threat against the animals and the livestock. Now, what what he's talking about here is a disease, a pandemic, some would say, that runs rampant through the animals of Egypt. He starts to kill some of them off. Now, this, this is, I think, for me, this is hard to sort of feel the weight of this. I've always lived in a city, in a very modern culture, And I am very disconnected from where my food comes from and how the chicken ends up on the plate at night. I don't ever see the chicken clucking around. I don't think about the importance of someone raising chickens or beef, cows to get my steak, right? I just sort of go to the store, get it, and eat it, much like I would a box of Lucky Charms. Very similar, right? And so it's, it's sort of a disconnect here between animals and, and the importance of animals for continuing to live and exist. But in this culture, they were so important. They could not continue to live and have health and well-being without their animals. And we read here in verse 3, look there again, the, this is the first time that God has said, or through Moses, the hand of the Lord will fall with a very severe plague. I mean, God has promised that his hand will act back in chapter 7, verse 4, and now there's a clear pronouncement that God's power specifically will accomplish this, and it will be a very devastating sickness, and it'll all happen in one day on their animals. And once again, God draws a very clear distinction. Look at verse 4. But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt. 
so that nothing of all that belongs to the people of Israel shall die. The distinction is drawn again. And verse 5, the wording of verse 5 is very, very interesting. And it it says at the beginning of verse 5, as all of this is happening, and the Lord set a time, saying tomorrow the Lord will do this thing in the land. Now, he set a time before, but here the specific words that Moses Moses uses and says the Lord set a time, this takes us back to the same wording that was used in the second plague. And so this is the second plague of the second cycle, and you go back to the second one of the first cycle, so they're parallel in that way, and it's the same wording, but in the second plague, the frogs, Moses lets Pharaoh set the time. And so initially, it's like God is saying, all right, Pharaoh, you can set the time, and I'll demonstrate my sovereignty and power so that you can understand who's in charge, and then you can respond appropriately. And clearly, Pharaoh doesn't get it. His heart is hardened. And so now, at this point in the process, God is saying, I'll just go ahead and set the time. I'll just go ahead and determine when this is going to happen, and I will determine the severity of how this plague comes upon you. Look at verse 6. And the next day, the Lord did this thing. All the livestock of the Egyptians died, but not one of the livestock of the people of Israel died. Now, to be clear here, because I know this is a question that always comes up in the progression of these plagues. Does this mean that every single animal of the Egyptians dies? It certainly sounds like that from this translation. And then later on, when the hail comes, you see that certain livestock were killed. And so you're like, contradiction. Well, no, it's not a contradiction because this This translation, unfortunately, does make it sound like every single animal dies, but this also could be translated that every type of animal or all sorts of animals, every kind, animals in every place. It's talking about the comprehensiveness of this plague. It touched every family in every part of Egypt with all sorts of animals, But it's not actually saying that every single animal down to the last donkey of the Egyptians died here. But it was a very, very tragic result. All of these animals get sick on the same day and they die. But notice in verse 6, not a thing happens to the Israelites, to none of their animals. But not one of the livestock of the people of Israel died. I found this quote helpful, and I thought it gave kind of a a picture, helped you to enter into what's going on here. Domesticated animals were treasured as enormously valuable assets in Bible times, as in any time prior to the Industrial Revolution or any place, even today, where farming predominates. Moreover, they were seen as closely interrelated to the welfare of humans, a fact reflected even in the Bible's creation accounts. The pantheistic Egyptians revered all animals, but birds and livestock more than fish and amphibians. For them to have lost livestock would constitute a serious blow indeed. And then this is the part that's so fascinating. For them to have lost livestock while the Israelites retained all theirs represented a nationwide humiliation. I mean, it's a bummer to lose your cow and your donkey and your horse, 
But when you look over and you understand that none of the Israelites had any problems on this day, something's going on. Now, amazingly enough, Pharaoh sends out all his little minions, his private investigators, to try to see if this is really, that there's really been a distinction here. Look at verse 7. And Pharaoh sent, and behold, not one of the livestock of Israel was dead. But the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go. He goes, he sends his people out, they check, and they see, and not one of the animals of Israel was impacted in any way. God targets only the animals of the Egyptians here. And yet, he continues to harden his heart. I hope as you go through these and as we're trying to, to explain what goes on, you can feel the, the intensity ramping up with each one. And again, Pharaoh hardens his heart. And it's building toward this confrontation between God and between Pharaoh. Now let's get to the sixth plague here, which is the last one in the second cycle. And we'll go quickly through this. Now, instead of targeting the animals with a plague, God targets the people. Look at verse 8. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Take handfuls of soot from the kiln and let Moses throw them in the air in the sight of Pharaoh. Now, again, you can see here the last plague in each of the cycles doesn't mention uh, Moses going to Pharaoh. God just tells them, act and perform the sign. And that's what they do here. And so you're drawing to the end of the second cycle. Verse 9, it shall become fine dust over all the land of Egypt and become boils breaking out in sores on man and beast throughout all the land of Egypt. So they took soot from the kiln and stood before Pharaoh and Moses threw it in the air and it became boils breaking out in sores on man and beast. And as this is unfolding, which I'm not going to try to describe the boils and the sores to you, and I did not Google that, I'll tell you that much. But as this is unfolding, we get this very fascinating comment in verse 11. Look there. And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils. For the boils came upon the magicians and upon all the Egyptians. Now, we haven't heard anything about the magicians in the fourth or the fifth plague. The last we heard of these guys was in the third plague, and their comment was, we can't duplicate this. This is the finger of God. They're specifically mentioned and targeted here, and this is important for a number of reasons. These men were Pharaoh's top advisors. I mean, early on, these are the guys he calls in to make sense of what's going on with the, with the signs, the plagues. They're the ones who, in some form or fashion, whether it's trickery or whether it's actual connection to demons and the powers of darkness, they're in some way able to make it seem like they can duplicate the signs. These guys were some of the most powerful men in Egypt. Everybody looks up to them. They're important. And one of the most important parts of their power that people believed was that they could heal. They would call these guys in to perform their ritual or their seance so that they could bring healing to a, a family member who was sick. And the point of this comment in verse 11 is, if the most capable, powerful healers in your entire land are not even able to stand before this divine power, and they can't get rid of this on their own, and they're crushed by the weight of it, then what does this say about anybody else? 
I mean, it's like your star player getting owned by the competition. If that guy can't stand up to him, then what hope do the rest of us have? And that was clearly communicated to Pharaoh and to everybody else. If these guys aren't safe, who is safe? And this also, I think, contributes to this progression that is happening in this story of the plagues, where early on the the magicians are duplicating, and then they're acknowledging that this is God's power, and now they're getting struck down by the power, and then in a few chapters you're going to see them begging Pharaoh to let the Israelites go. There's a progression and a movement there that happens. Now, of course, this sign ends the same way that the first five ended. Look at verse 12. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had spoken to Moses. So, there's a lot of story and details about biting insects and a pandemic among livestock and sores and boils on magicians. What do we, what do we pull away from all this? I want to zoom out a little bit. Remember, this is putting God's sovereign power on display. The reason we go through these details and walk you through this is so that you can feel and you can see the progression of the intensity and you can understand that God's sovereign power is put on display. And that, over and over again, demonstrates his superiority to any rival God. Now, there's a lot you can learn, and you can take away and discuss and and make specific application, but I want to draw your attention back to the distinction that is highlighted in the fourth and the fifth plague. And I want to end here thinking about that distinction. God put a, a, a wedge between Egypt, the Egyptians, the people of Pharaoh, and his covenant people. And that distinction is very real because of the phrase that God uses over and over again, my people. Now, just think about that phrase for a moment and bring that phrase into your life today. There is so much talk about personal identity in our culture. We're trying to figure out who we are. We're trying to understand what sort of people we are, who you are as a person, what is your personal identity. And the fact that you are known by God, that he would say, this, you are my person, you are my child, you are my son or daughter. He has made a covenant with you. That reality should be the most important piece of our personal identity. Not even that we know God, but that he, the sovereign, superior God of the universe, knows us. I mean, just think through that reality, that this morning, the God of the universe knows you by name, loves you, and has has made a covenant with you and drawn you to himself. And now you have a relationship with him. That is the defining feature of your life and of my life. I mean, you, we do have all these other personal identities, right? You, you're a husband, you're a father, you're a wife, you're, you're a daughter, you work, you're a church member. All of these things are so important and they're a part of who you are, but none of them come close to the fact that the God of the universe knows you. And so my encouragement to you would be to let that reality, that identity, determine who you are. Rest in that. Go back to that. 
Find your footing in that reality. God of the universe knows you, loves you. He is for you. And one day you will be with him forever. That's your personal identity. That is why these distinctions matter so much here. And that's why it's so important to watch how the God of the universe acts toward those who are, who are his people. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our time in your word this morning. I pray that you would use the scriptures in our hearts and our lives. Lord, we need this. We need to see your sovereignty. We need to relax and rest in your care for us. And then, Lord, as we see the distinction that is drawn here, the judgment and the redemption, help us to just rest in the redemption that we have in Christ, the identity that we now have as your children. Help that to shape us and form us into people who, who live out of that identity and are people of love and joy and peace and kindness and faithfulness and gentleness. Thank you for, for adopting us as your children. Thank you for loving us. It's in Christ's name we pray.